Merry early Christmas, Impact. How are you? I was expecting more. Are you more excited than that for Christmas? Only a couple days away. It's coming, ready or not. One more time. Merry Christmas. Say it back. It's amazing. You guys are second timers. That's, that's you. First time's never a go. How long would it, quiz question to start you off, how long do you guys think it would take to walk six miles? Two hours? I mean, if you weren't a senior citizen, how long would it take for you to walk six miles? What was that? 60 minutes, an hour. How long do you think it would take walkers to walk? And by that, I don't mean the walking dead. I mean, you know, walkers. Or do I mean the walking dead? How long would it take these guys, you think, to walk? Oh, we're having a little fun. They're not real. Walkers, have you noticed? All right, raise your hand if you've ever stumbled upon that show. Anybody? Okay, most of you. Most of you. The rest of you are lying, probably. You've probably seen. So the deal with the walking dead is they walk a little bit awkward because it's hard to walk when you're dead, right? So have you noticed, though, that when they run, I think that your, your average, uh, like if they're excited about a meal, like one of you guys. So if they're excited about one of you guys ahead of them, alive and breathing, then they walk a little bit better. You know, they walk a little bit faster. How many of you ever seen Olymp, the sport of Olympic walking? Somebody like, there's not, there is. Sadly, there is a sport called Olympic walking. And this is a little aside, a little ADD moment. Don't they look like the walking dead, those people, when they're going around the track? In two summers, they will converge upon Moscow, thousands of those, walker, those walkers, those walking dead types. I would say it would take the walking dead or a regular walker about two hours to cover that. I would say if they were chasing one of you for a meal, it would take them one hour to cover that. I love to do triathlons, which you can probably tell just by looking at me, right? Uh, yeah. I love to do triathlons. My best 5K is about 21 minutes. My son will argue that, but it's true. 21 minutes. His is approaching 17. Punk. It's a punk, man. My point, six miles is doable, gang. It's doable for just about anyone in a reasonable amount of time. Now, if you're in good shape, you can walk it in a couple of hours. It's really not much of a hike. And some of you are going, man, that's great. Thanks for the lesson on hiking and running and walking and Olympics. But what's that got to do with the Bible? It's got everything to do with the Bible. You know, I think one of the, way, one of the ways that God works that is tough, but it's beautiful when it's finished is, and you guys aren't going to like this, I, I think the main way that God works when he really changes people is he breaks them. He breaks them. Breaks them a little bit like you might break a, a thoroughbred horse. You know, if, you're, if a horse is going to be good for racing, for the Kentucky Derby or something, they're not good unless you break them, right? Because what do you think would happen to a thoroughbred horse if he, it was never broken and it's about three years old and somehow they managed to shove him into one of those stalls of the Kentucky Derby and get a rider on him? Well, that's all boxed in and that gate went up for them to go. What would happen to that rider on that horse? What do you think? That horse is heading straight for the stands, right? And he's going to throw him off and buck. It's all that energy and all that power, but it's not controlled. It's not controlled. So when you break a thoroughbred horse for racing, you don't destroy them. What you do is you focus them. You focus that horse now, all that power, everything they have that was scattered all over that place, that was just chaos, is now focused on one thing, running that track. So that's how God gets to us. He breaks us, and then he builds us back up in him. Sometimes, though, in the breaking process, we have to face things about ourselves that we really try so hard not to face. 
Let's face it, especially in American evangelicalism, the game is let everybody think you're okay, which I think is crazy because the church is supposed to be a hospital for sinners, not a country club for saints, and yet we come and we go, man, how am I going to convince everybody that I am the most together person they ever met, even though I'm dying inside? One point is, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to go to the hospital because you, maybe you've got cancer? Why would you want to go to the hospital and go, okay, my goal today is to convince all the doctors that I'm not sick? Well, they're, they're not going to treat you then. You're not going to get any help. And so the church, the goal should not be that you fake it. The goal should be that you come and you open up your heart and you let God do that surgery. You let God do the work that he's got to do. So back to this question. Maybe you'll look at it a little bit different now. What would motivate you to cover that distance? Six miles. What would motivate you to do it? Some of you go, nothing. I'm not a walker, I'm not a runner, nothing. Well, maybe something would motivate you. Let's say you wanted to get in shape, and you've been getting in shape a little bit. Maybe you want to do an international triathlon. It's longer than a sprint, and, and so you've got to run almost that far. And so since you want to say, I did a, I mean, I did an international, I did an Olympic triathlon, then you're going to have, that would motivate you to be able to say you did it. And in fact, it's not just the race where you're going to do it. You're going to have to be motivated enough to do it dozens of times to get ready for the race. So it's not a huge motivation, but it's a certain level, right? What if all walkers were promised a one in 100 shot at winning a million dollars? Okay, first hundred that comes, there'll be one million dollars given away to everybody that enters this race. You don't have to finish any specific time. You just got to go six miles. And you'll have a one in 100 shot at a million dollars. Would that motivate you to put your Nikes on? Would that do it? Some of you are like, yep. Some of you are nope, it's not good enough. What if your completion of the distance helped raise money for somebody in need, a burn victim, a poverty victim, cancer patient? Would that get your Adidas pedometer fastened? Would that, would, that, would that get you to break it out of the closet, put it on? Would that motivate you? Some of you, maybe doing it for yourself doesn't do it. Maybe doing something for somebody else does it. Because I'm, here's why I asked that question. Some of you are going, I know why you ask it, Pastor, because you're ADD. Everybody knows that about you. You're off on something, but you'll lay on the plane. Here it is. I ask that because I want you guys to help me. I'm baffled. I have been baffled since I was a little kid about a question. So I just thought that this year I'm just going to bring it to impact. We're all going to solve this thing once and for all. Before we leave here today, we're going to solve this thing. And you're either going to be in a mysterious group that makes no sense or you're going to be in a group with laser focus that makes all the sense in the world that's passionately motivated. Here it is. If you ever want, and the question's coming up. I'm just going to kind of lead up to it with a little more ADD rabbit trail stuff. If you want, it turns out, to walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, it's six miles. Six miles from Jerusalem to the little town of Bethlehem. That's all it is. Short little walk. If you ever visit the Holy Land, you'll see what I mean. My wife and I have been to Israel and let me tell you a little bit about it. The land of Israel is tiny compared to the United States. About, it's maybe just a hair bigger than New Jersey. Any New Jersey people here today? Yeah, they never admit it. You ever notice that? <laughs> They're here, but they go, why would I tell you that? You'll, you'll think differently. You'll look at me differently. So, when well, it's a little bigger than the Garden State. Is that an oxymoron or what? The Garden State. For, get off that, Pastor. A little bit smaller than Vermont. So you got a little bit of a, a, a size picture there. From the tribes of, which are still used today, from the tribe of Dan in the north down to Beersheba in the south, is only about 100, so the, pretty much the most northern section to the most southern section is only about 150 miles. Israel's small. It's a real small place. And for those of us who are used to thinking more in terms of maybe Miami to Seattle, 
I mean, it's hard to even get your, because that's our nation, it's hard to even in, think about this. Visiting the Holy Land, it's going to force you in an entirely different way of thinking. This is a tiny little place to move around in. I mean, you read it in the Bible and you hear about Jesus traveling from village to village, you think, well, how long did it take him to get to that place? Well, most of these places, these little villages, like if he goes to Capernaum and then he goes to another little village there, you can walk five minutes and be in another village. The Sea of Galilee was dotted with more villages and towns, probably over 100 of them. In fact, more back then than there are today. They used a lot of it for agriculture and farmland, so there were more back then. So on a typical tour, let me give you a little bit more. You might wake up in Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea and end up, the next, end up uh, next to the Sea of Galilee that evening if you took a bus ride. So you just drive throughout the day and you could be all the way in the north on the Sea of Galilee. In between, you might visit Mount Carmel, Megiddo, Nazareth, Cana, all the things that you'd want to hit uh, in Israel, all the places you'd want to visit that are told about in the Old Testament. It's very typical to start at the Sea of Galilee. It's very typical to visit Capernaum, the Mount of Beatitudes, Chorazin, Jericho, and at the end of the day, be in Jerusalem. It's a full day, but it's, that's typically how they do it. And, and you begin to see, wow, with just a bus, we, we hit it all. Man, we saw all of it. One of the very most important events to take place in the entire Bible took place a mere six miles from the holiest city on planet Earth, Jerusalem. How come that's the holiest city, Pastor Rob? Well, that's because three of the, the three biggest religions on planet Earth all converge there and claim it. Muslims claim it. Christianity claims it. Judaism claims it. Jerusalem. And just six miles from Jerusalem one of the most celebrated, biggest events in all of history took place just six miles from the holy city. I'm going to keep beating that home until you get it. It's the Christmas event that I'm talking about. At no other time of year do more people decorate, do more people celebrate, do more people give, you know, to charity or to, to, to one another, presents, whatnot. Do more people worship, do more people contemplate. Then Christmas time. There's no other time of the year where, where these things come together like this, then Christmas. And it's all because of an event that took place in a tiny corner of a tiny little village. That's why the song, Oh, Little Town of Bethlehem. If you go to Bethlehem today, it's probably about 10,000 people. It's a, you know, it's a little Monroe. It's a, but it's a, it's a good-sized town. You can hardly call it a village or town anymore. It's kind of grown up. It's got some high-rise apartments and so forth. But back then, it was probably, get this, a village of about... 200 people, about 200 people. Now, it would swell like when Caesar did the census and everybody had to go back to their place of birth. It could have swollen to four or five, six, seven hundred, maybe even a thousand people. That's why Mary and Joseph found no room at the inns that were there. They're all booked up because everybody was converging back on their hometown. So 2,000 years ago, there was not much there. Bethlehem was indeed a little town as described. I want you to hold this thought that I've said now four times in your mind. It was only six miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Only six miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Next door neighbors. Large city, little hamlet. Large thriving metropolis. Even in that day, little tiny village, little tiny town. Not very far. Okay? Put all that against the backdrop of the only place in all four Gospels where... The wise men are talked about in Matthew. And think of all that as we read. So in honor of God's word, would you stand to your feet? We're going to read Matthew 2, beginning in verse 2. Matthew 2, beginning in verse 2. 
Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, some of your Bibles might say magi, same thing, from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. Now, by the way, we're not going to have a lot of time to go into this. That's, where did they see this? How did they get this? These magi were from the east, as it says, most likely in the region of Babylon. So where did they get these writings? Where did they get this idea? What have they been studying? Well, think of who was brought into captivity about 500 years earlier. Daniel. And if you look around Daniel 7, it talks about this. It talks about the star. It talks about the coming one, the Messiah. And so they've actually been studying this. They don't have all the details, but they have enough to get them here. It's amazing. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They knew that he'd be the king of kings from Daniel. Now when Herod the king heard this, he was very troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. And the reason this is said is because you would think it was least, because it's just a little tiny nothing place. For from you, however, will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's only six miles from Jerusalem. You can be seated. That's got to move from your head, gang, to your heart today. For God to do a work in you, that's got to move from your head to your heart, only six miles from Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, I pray that for every single person here, whether they've been a believer for their whole life, Lord, since they were a little kid, or whether they do not know you, that this fact will head home. What we believe, we act on, God. Not necessarily do we believe what we talk about. Not necessarily do we believe what we project, do we that we put out there for other people, Lord. We believe what we act on. That's why, God, we can look at someone's checkbook or look at someone's, you know, someone's calendar and, and decide what's really important to them more than just listening to their words. So God, help us to know what's really important to us today and what's important to you. May those two things meld in our hearts for salvation in Jesus' name. Amen. So many questions, gang, come to mind when I read this passage. Here's some over the years that have come to my mind reading this one passage. Who were the wise men? Well, I just answered that a little bit. They were probably magi and, and scholars back in Daniel's day who trained the next generation of scholars, who trained the next generation of scholars, who trained for hundreds of years, and, and they kept passing this information down until they got to this group who was alive at the right time and in the right place, and they began the journey to see the king of kings that Daniel talked about. Where'd they come from? The east. How far did they journey? Some of them take a little more time. We can actually do a sermon probably on all of these things. How many wise men came to Jerusalem? Some of you would probably answer three, but it's not. Oh, yes, it is, pastor. Heresy. No, why do you think there's three? Everybody knows that. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Free. That's it. No, not free, by the way. Three. No, that's not it. It just says those are three gifts that they brought. It doesn't mean that there's only three that brought those gifts. Most likely, some scholars believe there could have been hundreds. An entourage, servants, more wise men, and that together they brought these gifts. So how many were there? What's this star they saw in the east? Where's that star now? How did it lead them? How does a star lead people? How does a star guide? Was it like a flashlight, a spotlight, something? Why did they come to worship the king of the Jews? Why wouldn't they just worship their own king? 
Why was the whole city disturbed? Herod was very upset about this, but it said most of Jerusalem with him. So the word got out like crazy. Why? What causes the whole city to get upset? Anxious, afraid. So there's a lot of questions, gang. And here's the good news. I'm not going to focus on any of those. Oh, I wanted to know those. No, we're going to focus on one that's bothered me, like I said, for years. Here it is. Why didn't the Jewish leaders go the six miles to Bethlehem? That's bothered me my whole life. Six miles. Why didn't anyone get off their blessed assurance and go to Jerusalem? This is what they lived for. This is what they studied. This is what they waited for. This is what they hoped for. This is what they longed for. Here it is, and you're going to find out in a moment, they knew it was here. And they said, no thanks. Can't go. Why not? Panthers are playing today. Can't go. This is a good season for them. Yeah, but this is life or death. This is eternity. This is the Panthers. So whatever it was got in the way of something hugely important. If they knew that the Messiah was to be born there, why didn't they go and check it out for themselves? Now, if you're a note taker, please get this. Because this is a dangerous truth that I've come up with here. The Magi knew so little, came so far, and gave so much. All right, let me say that again. The Magi, the wise men, knew so little, but they came so far, and they gave so much. Didn't have a lot of knowledge. However, the teachers of the law, the religious people, they knew so much, were so close, so near, and did so little. There's a truth in there that is very frightening. The truth in there is very frightening. So let me say it again for the three of you that wrote it down. Write it down. This is big. The Magi knew so little. They didn't have much to go on. They came so far, hundreds of miles, maybe more. And they gave so much. And then you got the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the zealots, the Herodians. All of them knew so much. Some of them had the facts about the Messiah memorized. And they were so close. How close? Six miles. And they gave so little. They did nothing. This is upside down. And it's really, really bothered me over the years. And I'm bothered that it's not bothering you that much. So some of you kind of listen and go, yeah, that is intriguing. I'll make a note of that, Pastor. If it doesn't bother you, then some of the elements they had in their heart might be present here today. Just saying. That's okay. We'll weed it out. Give me some time. As I was writing these words this week, I live out in the Monroe area. So I was writing them from Monroe. So let me state this matter in local terms. If Jesus came to Weddington from Monroe, where I live, would I go to see him? It's about, to get to the very edge of it, about seven miles. So I have to go a half mile or so or a mile further. If someone said that Jesus, if you lived out there, someone said that Jesus was in Wesley Chapel, would you go? Not Jesus. How about the Messiah, the, long, the, the biggest event of your life? Would you go? Somebody like, sure, I'd just get in my car now. One of those chumps 2,000 years ago. It's five minutes. I don't think they'd have gone if they had cars. I don't think they'd have gone if they'd, if they'd have been beamed there like Star Trek. They weren't interested. This supposedly most important event of their life had completely vacated their hearts. They didn't register. Didn't care. Would you go? If Jesus showed up in downtown Waxhaw, would you go meet him? 
What if Jesus came to Matthews? What if Jesus came to Indian Trail? What if Jesus came anywhere that's about six miles from you? Would you make an effort to see him? If Jesus came to a nearby town, and I think most of you sitting there hearing this or whether you're hearing this on a podcast, you're probably, of course, of course, Pastor Rob. We're not like them. We'd go. It's going to get scary here in about 15 minutes because I'm going to show you that we're a little more like them than we think. But the cool part is we don't have to be that way. We can change. Think of all that the teachers of the law knew about the coming Messiah. Let's go over just a little bit. They knew that he would be born of the seed of the woman. That's from Genesis 3.15. So stuff about the Messiah starts in the third chapter of the very first book of the Bible. And some of you are going, he'll be born of the seed of the woman. Big deal. Well, listen, it is a big deal. The term her seed speaks of an apparent possibility. It's from the seed of a man, obviously, that people are naturally conceived. So this means that this would have to be supernatural, an immaculate conception, the way Jesus was born, born of a virgin. Way back in Genesis 3.15, it's talking about the seed of a woman. Impossible without God intervening. That's the earliest foreshadowing of the Messiah in Scripture. He would be a descendant of Shem. That's in Genesis 9, 26. He'd be of the seed of Abraham, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. He'd be a descendant of Isaac. He'd be a descendant of Jacob. He'd be from the tribe of Judah. He'd be a son of David. Now, but some of you are thinking, big deal, Pastor Rob. What I get from those last five, I know you're trying to really doctor this up, is that he'd have a dad and then a great-granddad and a great-great-great-granddad. Big deal. We all have that. Who cares? Some of you thinking that? Well, let me tell you, and this is where that picture comes. It's more, hold it for just a minute. It's more specific than this. The Messiah would have to come and be a son or a great-grandson of that name, Judah, of that man, Abraham. All these men had brothers. All these men had sisters. But any one of those would be a wrong turn and take it off the line of prophecy. So it's kind of like this. If you were to, how many of you have iPhones? Okay, those are the godly people. How many of you have the satanic Android? Anybody have that? All right, so I'll pray for you guys. So if you were to ask Siri, because Siri's a Christian, if you were to ask Siri how to get somewhere, she'll give you directions. But have you ever noticed that sometimes she gives you options? I'll tell you what this is like. It'd be like asking a spiritual Siri how to get to God and 300 billion routes coming up in blue. So go ahead and show that there. The first picture that you had on earlier. All the blue, that's what Siri gives you on possible ways to get there. However, the only way that God cares about is red. Now, I tried to just, I just scribbled on this thing to make a lot of different routes to the same place. But honestly, in, in real life, with, with the chances of, of prophecy happening the way it did, it's something like one to the power of about 300 zeros. I don't even know what that number would be. The chances that all 300 prophecies about Jesus could even randomly come true. In other words, it's impossible. So that whole page would have been just blue and you would have seen a red line. So much blue, so many routes that you can't see the map. It's just all blue. But the little red line with all its different turns, it's 300 turns and twists. That's the only one you can take that will actually lead there. That's what this means. He was born of this person or he was born of that person. He'd be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. He'd be born in Bethlehem. That's Micah 5, 2. And that's all we're talking about. We're just talking about this one piece today because this one piece bothered me because it's only six miles to go check it out, see if it's true. But here's some more. Let me, we can sum it up like this, gang. I'll, I'll put it in smaller categories, bite-sized chunks for you. Number one, he'll be a Jew. Number two, he'll come from the tribe of Judah. Number three, he'll be a descendant of David. Number four, he'll be born in Bethlehem. Number five, he'll be born of a virgin. That's, those are the, the basics that you got. 
Who were these scribes and chief priests and teachers of the law that Herod consulted? Who were they? They're the Harvard scholars. They're the MIT students of that day. They are the brightest minds on earth in that day. And so when Herod, who was a megalomaniac, makes Saddam Hussein look like Mother Teresa, this guy was, this guy was bad. How bad? Glad you asked. Caesar once said of Herod, it would be safer to be his pig than his son. I'd rather be, if I was in his family, I'd rather be his pig than his son because he killed most of his kids. If he was even suspicious that you might want his throne before he died, he'd have you killed. Killed kids, killed wives. This guy was a horrible person. And so when the Magi come, hundreds of them with their entourage, and they come from the east, and it looks like a big deal, and it would have had to have been more than three because, look, the whole city is in an uproar. So a lot of people came, a lot of servants, an entourage from a powerful country far away. Jerusalem notices them. It's big enough to get noticed. Herod notices this, and as they're talking to him, he goes, well, let's see if we can figure this out together. And he calls every Pharisee, every Sadducee, every scribe, every zealot, every priest, every religious scholar he can find, empties it, brings them to the palace, and they start talking about it. It. They start talking about the Messiah from the Old Testament and exactly what would happen. Hold that thought. When my wife and I went to Israel, and it's now been about 15 years ago, we saw modern-day scribes at work. Not the top dogs, but the kind of the, the trainees, the interns. They wear these like skullcap things, and they, they, they work over their slanted desks, kind of standing up. And when they're copying the Torah, when they're copying the Old Testament, you can watch them as they painstakingly transcribe not every word, but every letter, every jot and every tittle and every Hebrew nuance, one by one by one, carefully writing them one after the other, taking their time, watching carefully, checking their work, making sure they don't miss a letter, and if they do, they'll just get rid of that whole page and start over. Nothing's changed in thousands of years. They still do that. It's one of the reasons we can rely so much on the Word of God because of how it was so carefully passed down. When we visited the Western Wall, and if you were to visit the Western Wall today, you'd see Jewish men near the wall standing and chanting passages. What are they chanting? When they're going like this on the Western Wall and they're chanting, they're also taking little slips of paper and slipping it into the Western Wall. What is that? It's little passages from the Old Testament. What are the passages? They're passages mostly about the coming Messiah that they're waiting for. So still to this day, they're painstaking. They're so focused. They're so riveted on the details. And they know, ask any of them from the highest on, on down to an intern or in fraternity speak a plebe, and they all know the details about the Messiah. If they knew the truth, the question keeps coming back, from the top dog all the way to the bottom, and they're all raised that way, why didn't any of them Go six miles. Just go check it out. When Herod asked where the Christ was to be born, immediately the religious scholars knew the answer. I mean, these guys would have hit the button. I don't watch Jeopardy, but I guess it works like this. Where's Bethlehem in Judea? That would have been it. They would have won against it. You could not have answered in time. They know it. It's, not, it's just regurgitating. Everybody knows the facts. Because that's what the prophet Micah foretold actually 700 years earlier. Knew it by heart. Didn't have to look it up. They knew the truth, though. It just keeps haunting me. Why didn't they just go? This is it. This is what we've memorized our whole life. This is what we live for. Ready, guys? Six miles away. Let's all go together. No? 
How about we get a couple of the interns? No, they got to go to Subway to get us meals for the game. We really can't afford it. Isn't there a plebe? Somebody? Anyone? I don't think so. After all, it is six miles. But all these people that came from the east, they're going, well, maybe they'll tell us what they find when they get back. In fact, that's what Herod said. Herod said to them, when you find out where this king of the kings is, come back and tell me so that I might worship him. What a nice guy Herod is, huh? He wants to go worship him too, huh? The guy that killed most of his sons and his wife. and No, he wants to have him killed. That's all he cares about. But he won't even go down there himself to check it out. He wants the wise men who've traveled hundreds, if not over a thousand miles, to go do it themselves. Something's wrong with the story. This is completely upside down. This is the football team not showing up for the Super Bowl game after a 17-0 season. They played perfectly. And now it's time for the Super Bowl. Where's the other team? I don't even want to play. They're all just doing their own thing. They're at home. They're, they, they, this is the president after two years of campaigning, I was going to say, four years of campaigning for the presidency and being elected, not showing up and winning the election of landslide, not showing up for the inauguration. Where's the president? Oh, he just he didn't want to come. He really had a lot of fun campaigning, and he's so glad you picked him, but that's the end. Well, I guess it didn't really mean anything. This is like the host country for the Olympics, the host country. The next time the Summer Olympics is going to be in Moscow. It's going to be like if all the stuff's paid for and all the lights and everything there, all the nations come for the parade and all, but where's Moscow? Oh, they didn't show. Yeah, they bid for it. They wanted it so bad, but now that it's here, not so much. And you look at that and you go, that stuff sounds crazy. Not as crazy as this. Not as crazy as this. See, gang, get this. By not showing on the most important day, we nullify everything else about us that we've ever said. They nullified everything they ever said about themselves. All the study, if you were a Pharisee and you were raised and picked it at probably seven or eight years old at having gifts and intellect higher than, your, than the other kids in class and you're raised up that way and you're trained, doesn't matter, you just nullified everything by not going. Sadducees, you nullified everything. The priest nullified everything. The high priest nullified everything. The scribes nullified everything. The zealots nullified everything. It's just talk, doesn't mean anything. Why? Because you didn't go. And real faith has action. If there's no action, it's just talk. It's just talk. So here's how I want to wrap up today. Here's where it kind of merges with them and us. I'm going to solve this question. I'm going to suggest there are four answers to that question because the disease that inflected them spiritually and kept them from God is, is, is very much blown up into an, a pandemic today. It's huge. So pay attention to these four things that inflicted them that caused them to... to to miss the very thing they said was most important. Because I think we have the same disease. So get this down. Here's the first one. Their knowledge made them, gang, intellectually lazy. Intellectually lazy. Their knowledge made them intellectually lazy. Have you ever seen someone that knows so much about a subject that they just get bored about it? And then they start making easy mistakes because they're just relying on, oh, I've done this so many times. Well, you just got it wrong. Really? Yeah, because you just got lazy. It just depended on everything that you knew. You know it's possible? Did you even know it's possible to know too much? You can study so long and compare so many opinions and, and read so many books and debate so many ideas that you never get around to making a commitment to anything that you discover. You're just a scholar. You are ever learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And if you want to know if that's a problem, Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 7, this is going to become a huge problem. 
there will be people that are ever learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's like, tell me more about Jesus. It's like the Pharisees. Do another miracle, Jesus. Show me something else so I can accumulate more knowledge about you but never, ever come to the truth, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Gang, knowledge is good, but sometimes you gotta decide what you personally are gonna do with what you've been learning. Otherwise, knowledge is a flat-out waste of time. It's just useless. It doesn't matter at all. I know what the Hindus believe. I study that a lot. I know what Mormons believe. I know what Muslims believe. I listen to all the experts. I read the latest books. I can intellectually discourse with a lot of them. But of what use is the great knowledge if I never make a commitment to anything? What, what you, honestly, think about what, what use. You're a walking encyclopedia. But that's all you are. As long as Jesus is just a theory to us, then he will be of no benefit to us personally. As long as Jesus is just a theory to be dissected to you and you don't connect personally, then Jesus and you, that, it's useless, meaningless. Forget it. Move on. Do something else. All right, that's the first thing. Number two, their political correctness made them socially and emotionally robotic. Of the four things that I'm going to point out that are a problem that we have, this is the worst one. Why didn't you save it for last? You'll see. I may need time to get you back because you'll be so offended in this one. Which usually stops me, doesn't it? PC, <laughs> political correctness, gang, is not new. It's not new. We didn't invent it. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, as far as I can tell, it looks like, it looks like they invented it. it. looks like they were the ones that came up with it. We just perfected it. We're just the ones that are making it really obnoxious. But to walk the earth in the time of Christ was to walk a tightrope of tolerance that you wouldn't believe. And it's never really been seen again until modern times. Think about it. There were in Jesus' day 613 religious laws you had to try and keep. There was a Roman government that you didn't want to offend upon being put to death if you offended them too much. There were several different taxes you had to keep in your mind that you had to pay, whether you supported where your tax dollar went or not. Does that sound familiar? Ooh. There were a million things that were considered blasphemous and a million and one that were considered heretical. You talk about walking a tyrant. So the safest thing for a Jew living in Palestine at that time would just be don't rock the boat, any boat at any time. Just walk a narrow line, don't say the wrong things, just live in a tiny little sliver. But that's not living at all. That's not living at all. And in fact, and please hear me on this. This is why so many of the Jews back then missed Jesus. Because when you narrow that into a tiny little thing, and you can't see the left or the right, it's just small. When Jesus is out here, how can you see him? How can you see him? And this is the problem today too. It seemed to many in 2,000 years ago, Palestine, that the best way to live life was just don't ruffle feathers anywhere. Today, Today, this is the I can't get involved crowd. You know them. That's not my problem. I'm not going to get involved. The film the beating of the assault or the sexual assault or whatever you see on the iPhone crowd. Have you seen them? Have you noticed that on YouTube we have all, these, all this footage of horrendous things happening? Who's filming this stuff? People getting beat? People getting robbed? People getting murdered? People looting? Who's filming this stuff? The PC crowd, the herd, they film it. Why aren't they stopping it instead? Why don't they get involved? 
Because that's stepping out of the political correctness into a realm most people don't even understand. No, you don't want to go there because you might get hurt. You don't want to go there because people might notice. Walk the narrow little road here of PC correctness. So it's that crowd. In fact, it's even in an extreme, the, the worst representation I've ever seen of it really would be Nazi Germany, right? Do you know in Nazi Germany, it wasn't that they were irreligious. It wasn't that people didn't go to church anymore that was able to have this, this horrendous thing rise up. Did you know that there were churches along the tracks, because there were so many tracks with train cars, railway cars, packed so, so full of Jewish people on their way to the death camps that you know, millions were put to death and there were so many different death camps that there were tracks everywhere. There were churches, they've looked back, churches that were full of people worshiping. And when the trains came by, that they knew in the back of their head were doing this and what was in those railway cars, you know what they did? They stopped the church service and they stopped the train and they got them off and they got involved, right? No, they sang louder. I'm not kidding. They sang louder. I mean, the choir director, the, the person leading in the hymns would simply indicate that we need to sing louder so that the world out there won't intrude in here. That's sick. And you'll miss things when you do that. It's the same mentality just on steroids of how they missed Jesus. That's why so many missed Jesus when he came to earth. 1 Peter 2, 7-8 says, So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected, is talking about Jesus, has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You know what that means? Jesus will offend you. If you want to get to know Jesus, you're probably going to trip over him a few times. You're probably going to be offended. He's going to bother you. He's going to be like salt in the wound. He's going to stir things up. There's going to be a breaking. Otherwise, you've met the wrong guy. Otherwise, you haven't met Jesus. You meet Jesus, it's going to rock your world. It's not safe. It's not comfortable. It's not PC. Put it another way. Not only will Christianity become offensive to those who have already rejected Jesus. So if you reject Jesus like the Pharisees and religious leaders, then Christianity, the whole idea, is very offensive. But it, it's not just for them. It'll be the inability to ever risk offending others in the first place, the inability to break away from the PC herd and the tightrope of tolerance that will cause others to miss Jesus in the first place. I know that's a lot. That's an earful, but does that make sense? It'll be the fact that, that, that we don't want to say offensive things or hear offensive things or break out of anything that caused most people to miss Jesus in the first place. And if you've heard about him and encountered him somehow but rejected him, then everything you hear about him beyond that is going to start to offend you. It's really a slippery slope, as they say. You know what the kicker is? They should have been prepared not only for Jesus coming and all these questions they answered, they should have been prepared for when Jesus comes, he'll be a stumbling stone. When Jesus comes, he'll be offensive. When Jesus comes, he won't be comfortable. He won't be politically correct. How do I know that? Because the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 8.14 said, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to Israel. Said it hundreds of years before. When he comes, look out. He's going to offend you. He's going to stir things up. You will not be comfortable. If you're really comfortable with someone, it's probably not him. It's probably not him. In fact, he says he'll be a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This isn't the disciples in the New Testament talking. This is Isaiah hundreds of years earlier saying that's what it's going to look like. So I was trying to figure out, well, how do I get these people to realize this, that we're in this culture today? How do I offend you? 
I'm like, you know, I struggle with that. So I was trying to think of how to offend you. And then I thought, I know, I'll call up the guys from Duck Dynasty. I'll bring them in for an interview. And so I did. And they're here. Really, Pastor Rob, because I'm freaking out a little bit. <laughs> yes, really. <laughs> they're here. I don't know what the whole mess is about, but I thought we'd ask them. I think this is, what's his name? <laughs> Jace, that's right, I know that. I've seen the show once. So, Jace, what's the big issue with everything that's going on? Did you catch that? Is he making sense? Can you hear him? Let's ask him another thing. What do you think the big controversy is? When you don't know what you're doing, you might as well do it quickly. Okay, I guess that makes sense. So maybe your dad did that too quick. What do you think? Maybe your brother has the answers. So let's ask him. What do you think? I know it looks bad, but it's all Jason's fault. I'm just going to figure out how. And... Probably my personal favorite, and I can tell you guys aren't really offended yet, and I know why, because we haven't brought him out. But here's the most brilliant guy. This is Cy. So ask Cy what he thinks. Gotta play the music first. I'm in, Jack. Did you catch that? Because I did. You know, Cy's hard to understand on the real show. The real Cy. But gang, that's not why any of us are bothered, right? Here it is. This is the guy brought everything up, right? Forget his name, but Phil? Wow, it's on the tip of everybody's tongue this week, huh? You and the one million Facebook followers. What do you have to say? I am 911. Women with whiskers. It's a bummer. <laughs> looky here, looky here. Good times have come our way. Now, all right, let me say this. So what are you saying, Pastor Rob? Are you condoning this? No, you know what? I heard what he said. I actually heard what he said the second time around, too. Read what he said. One of the passages, one of the things that he said was a direct quote from Romans 1, word for word. And apparently that got more people offended than anything else he said. And I went back and said, you know what, that sounds awfully familiar. And I went back and I looked and I compared it. It was word for word from Romans 1, which means the word of God is an offense. The word of God is a stumbling stone. Did he say what he said right? I could have been said nicer. Did everything he said, was everything he said kind? No. Was everything he said correct? No. But what he said about the word of God was. And, you know, it, it was kind of amazing to me that that was the point that was the biggest stumbling stone of everything, straight out of God's word. Everything else was kind of peripheral on it. Why do I bring them up? I promise you it's not for Duck Dynasty, and it's not against Duck Dynasty. It's for this. If you can't break out of the PC mentality, you can't break away from the herd, you'll never meet Jesus. He's outside of that. He's not inside of that. So how do I get you guys to do that in five minutes? It's the only way I could think of. Bring up something that's offensive today, right now. I can already feel it. A little bit of discomfort in the room. That's why we're moving on to point three. 
Number three, their background made them culturally arrogant. Get that? Their background made them culturally arrogant. I think this might be a central reason. Think about it. One day, some strangers show up in town. They claim to have seen a star in the east that led them to search for a baby-born king of the Jews. They're not Jewish. What a bizarre story. And who are these guys anyway? And how do we know if they're for real? And who sent them? And where have they come from? And what's this star? I see a bright light, but how do you, how's it leading you? And who cares? We're the ones with the knowledge. Plus, you guys look different. And I just noticed something. You talk different. You sound like rednecks from the east. You dress strange. Everything about you screams, we're not from around here. No wonder the town, gang, of Jerusalem, most of it was in an uproar. Strange doings in Jerusalem, for sure. Now, get this from that one. It's always easy to discount people who are not like us. It's always easy to discount people who are not like us. It's just easy. And finally, their religion made them spiritually indifferent. This is a danger today. Their very religion that's supposed to draw you closer to God made them spiritually indifferent. Answering Herod's question was like playing a game of Bible trivia where you know all the answers in advance. It's all it was for them. But religion, even good religion, even Bible-based religion, even American evangelicalism can deaden the heart and mind. If it's just religion, it's all too easy to fall into the trap of saying, hey, well, are you a Christian? Sure. Are you going to heaven? Yeah. Why? I'm Baptist. Are you going to heaven? Are you sure you're saved? Of course I am because I'm Catholic. That's it. And you all, I'm sure, have heard this many, many times, but if I stand in my garage and tell myself I'm a car over and over again, it doesn't make me one, right? Or if I stand in a chicken coop, it doesn't make me a chicken. And saying over and over again that I'm Baptist doesn't make me a Christian. It really has nothing to do with it. It's just a denomination. It's too easy for all of us to play by the rules of whatever church we attend and still keep Jesus Christ at arm's length. It's going to happen now at Christmas time more than at any other time of year. We'll have so many trappings about God that we'll hide him underneath it all, underneath all the wrapping. Most of us will not get through it all and find Jesus this time of year for ourselves, let alone the people that we want to bring to Christ. I want it to be different at an impact. I want it to be different. I want him to be more than just a, a theory to us. I want him to be the King of Kings. I want him to be the Lord of Lords. I want him to be the Savior. What does Jesus mean? What does the name mean? And you will call him Jesus, the angel said to Mary. Why? Because he will save the people from their sins. What people? All people. Not just Jewish people, but including all the people from the east who came to see him and including everyone who will be born. Everyone. All people who access him through the heart, not just the mind. He will become a Savior who will save them from their sins. Worst thing that could happen to you and I is our sin. Is our sin. Six miles from Jesus. Could walk it in two or three hours. Or even today we could drive it in five or six minutes. Suppose we just emptied impact right now and went for a six mile walk. Most of us could do it without any problem. But whether from fear or ingratitude or now that we've learned it could be laziness or indifference, the Jewish leaders wouldn't go six miles to see Jesus. Come thou long expected Jesus. Only six miles. Look at some of the hymns. Born to set thy people free. Only six miles. O come all ye faithful. Only six miles. O come let us adore him. Six miles. 
Six miles and none of the scribes cared enough to go check out the rumor that the long-awaited Messiah might be here. Nobody, not even an intern, not even a plebe. So it apparently is possible to know a great deal and still miss the truth. It's dangerous. As I read Matthew 2, one fact strikes me above all others. Everybody involved had the same basic information. Forget the fact that the Jewish leaders had more. Forget the fact that the people coming, the wise men from the east had little and the Jewish leaders had a lot. Everybody had at least a little. Remember the five basic things? Everybody had that. Enough to go on. They all knew a baby had been born in Bethlehem. They all knew who the baby was. Herod knew and tried to kill him later. And the scribes knew and ignored him. And the wise men knew and worshipped him. The Bible scholars knew the answer to the question. They knew that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, but their knowledge condemned them all the more because they didn't do anything. Faith without works is dead. For all those who feel they're too busy to join the search for Jesus this Christmas, C.S. Lewis wrote these words. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him everything else thrown in. What is that really? What's that? That's kind of an interpretation of Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all this stuff you're clamoring for in your life, I'll throw that in. But seek that stuff for yourself first and I won't even throw myself in. Go after Jesus first and all the stuff you're clamoring for, you get. He'll take care of you. Go after the stuff you're clamoring for and you don't get God. Six miles to eternity. Six miles to eternity. Jesus stands at the end of life's road for everybody. You either bend the knee to him now in this life and you're adopted as a son or daughter of the living God or your knee will bend one day before him because every knee will bow. It's either now or later, but every knee will bow. Jesus stands at the end of life's road for everyone. So here's what I want us to do. This group here today is mostly the Impact family, but we've got two days coming up, and we've been praying for people that we're going to bring tomorrow night and Tuesday night on Christmas Eve Eve and on Christmas Eve. And we've been putting their names on ornaments for the last month since Thanksgiving, really. And we've added to them each week, and we've been praying for them, and hopefully we've been inviting them. But as we give back to God right now, as we get our tithes and offerings ready to give back and worship Him with our tithes and offerings, I want to take a little extra time as Will is playing here, and I want to pray. I want you guys to silently be in prayer. I'm going to lead us at first, but take some time to come up here if you need to. Add names if you need to, because it's not too late. But I want to pray for these people that are on the ornament. They're real people. They're not just names. And gang, here's another thing. They're not going to come tomorrow night or the next night because you put their name on an ornament. You know that, right? So that's one of those things you know in your head, but are you going to do anything about it? Will you get them the six or seven or maybe eight or five or four miles to this place? Because that'll show that it really matters. It's kind of how this whole message comes down to reality, doesn't it? So let's pray, and let's pray for these people. Father, thank you for the tithes and the offerings that you give to us at first, Lord. You give us out of your bounty. You give us what is good, Lord. And then you say, would you give a small part of what I've allowed you to steward? Would you give it back to me 
to show that you love me and you put me first. And God, that's what we do now. We worship you now with our tithes and offerings to further this mission and this vision of Impact Church, Lord. But there's another offering this week that's most important. God, as we look at the names on these ornaments, Father, and and every year, I've done this for the last several years, and some of the ornaments say, Dad. Some of these ornaments say Mom or Grandpa or Grandma. And some of them have names. Some of them have families. Some of them have just titles, co-worker, friend at school, Lord. Every one of them you know, Lord. You know the, the, the number of hairs on every one of our head, Lord. You know such detail. You certainly know who everybody's referring to here. And God, for impact, Lord, let us translate this from our mind and from our effort here in the last few weeks to reality. Lord, let us do whatever it takes to show that we care. God, most of us made a journey to you that know you as Lord and Savior. We all did. Whatever it took, we were broken before you and received you as Lord and Savior. But God, we all know people who haven't, God. So let us give that gift away this Christmas Eve Eve and this Christmas Eve, Lord. God, I pray that you'd fill this place, Lord. Father, we're praying that many will come and that most that come are lost people and that they don't leave this place the same way that they came in, but that they are transformed. And that's why we're calling this Christmas transformation. God, let something real happen in this time, Lord. We don't want to just sing hymns and light candles. Lord, we want to do something miraculous. We want to be a part of something miraculous. The biggest miracle, when you said that those who follow you after the resurrection, greater works than you did, they will do. What's greater, Lord, than what you did? Well, God, the greatest miracle is a life transformed. When your Holy Spirit completely changes someone and makes them a new creation, that's the greatest miracle. Thank you that we can have a role in that, that we can have a part in that, God. Transfer these names from the ornaments to our hearts, Lord. Transfer these names from our minds to our hearts, to our feet and hands, and help us to get them here, Lord. We pray for a great harvest. You said the harvest is great, Lord. We will give your gospel, Lord. We pray that your Holy Spirit will move in a big way. In Jesus' name, amen.